Who was Drew Pearson? For four decades, he produced a daily newspaper column that made news by breaking secrets. At its peak, his Washington merry-go-round appeared on the pages of more than 600 newspapers in the United States and abroad. From the Great Depression through World War II and the Cold War, the Civil Rights Movement, the war in Vietnam, the columnists revealed major policy disputes and petty political spats, accomplishments and blunders, hypocrisy and malfeasance. He attacked bigotry and promoted social justice. He pumped up some political careers while destroying others. For revealing hidden news, he caused angst within seven presidential administrations and ruined countless days for members of Congress. He undermined demagogues, forced the resignation of a powerful White House chief of staff, and may have driven a cabinet secretary to suicide. He attracted eager readers and fierce detractors. Donald A. Ritchie, in his book, The Columnist. Welcome to Delmarva today. I'm your host, Harold Wilson. My guest this morning is Donald Ritchie, and we're discussing his book, The Columnist, about the life and work of the famous columnist, Drew Pearson. Don is the historian emeritus of the U.S. Senate. He conducted an oral history program at the Senate and edited for publication the transcripts of the previously closed hearings of Senator Joseph McCarthy. Don Ritchie is the author of more than 30 books. Don, welcome to Delmarva today. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm honored uh, to have you here today. Let me ask you uh, right off, uh, Don, why this book on Drew Pearson and why now? Well, you know, I'm a political historian and people always ask me, how is it that I wound up writing about journalists rather than politicians? I worked for the U.S. Senate Historical Office for about 40 years, and I answered questions from reporters almost every day that I, I worked there. And after a while, I got curious about how reporters went about doing their work and how accurate their information was. Because as an historian, I depended on their information from the past and the present, and I knew very little about the people who actually wrote the stories. So when they came to interview me, I began to interview them. And over time, that led to the publication of a book about the 19th century press corps called, uh, that was called a, a Press Gallery, Congress and the Washington Correspondence. And then later, a book about the 20th century, which was called Reporting from Washington. And one book ended in 1932, and one book began in 1932. Interestingly, there are very few people who are in both books, but one of them is Drew Pearson, yeah. who straddled that period, who began in the 1920s and was still there when he died in 1969. 
So he was a person I was aware of, but uh, you know, again, I, I came across so many uh, occasions in which people called him a liar that he seemed a good example of a, re a controversial reporter for a time when people are, have questions about the news. You know, people charge fake news all the time. Uh, and the polls show that Americans have less, uh, uh, you know, support, feelings of support for journalists, less confidence in journalists than ever before. And so I thought this was a good time to take a look at a very controversial journalist and see how accurate really was he over his career. Well, how controversial was Drew Pearson? I'd say he was about as controversial as any journalist could get. Uh, he, uh, he really uh, riled up politicians. There are about seven presidents who at one time or another called him a liar. Winston Churchill called him the most colossal liar in the United States. Members of the Senate and the House filled pages of the congressional record by calling him every possible name, uh, denouncing what he'd written, absolutely denying the truth what he was ready. Uh, he took a punch in the nose from an angry lobbyist. He was beaten up by Joe McCarthy at one right. point. Uh, he had uh, his, his radio sponsors were boycotted. It, you know, he, he certainly got everybody steamed up over his, his career. But of course, he understood that controversy helped to sell his column. And uh, whenever he was attacked, he made sure to reprint those attacks in the column. Was he a liar? You know, that was my big question for this. Uh, so I started going back, looking at the charges that people brought against it. I mean, he was sued for libel over 120 times. Uh, and as I say, the President uh, Franklin Roosevelt called him a chronic liar. Uh, Winston Churchill called him a colossal liar. So I looked at the instances where uh, politicians in particular absolutely denied the truth of his accounts. I went back to the archives. I looked up what happened, what we know about those instances now. And in case after case, I found that Pearson got the story pretty correct. He made some mistakes, but he got the gist of the story correct. It was the person who was accusing him of lying who was actually lying to cover up their trail. You know, what annoyed Franklin Roosevelt and Winston Churchill wasn't that Pearson got the story wrong. They were upset because he got the story right. And yeah. He got it from classified information. He got it from secret that they didn't want to let out. Uh, and so they accused him of lying. Uh, and, and in fact, of the matter is, I think Pearson had a pretty good track record. You know, I said he was sued for libel 120 times. He won all but one of those cases, and he won them by proving that the information he'd published was true. You say uh, in your book that Pearson was a man on a mission. And in my conversation with his stepson, Tyler Abel, Tyler said that Drew Pearson was a workaholic, actually. If Pearson was a man on a mission, what was his mission? He wanted to tell the news that was really happening. He wanted to tell people, not what the politicians wanted to tell them, but he wanted to tell them what was actually going on behind the scenes. You know, if a person put out a press release, he wanted to know what motivated that press release, how accurate was it? 
So he felt that the rest of the press corps was largely deferential to politicians, but he wanted to show them as they really were. He started out uh, writing a, a, a very popular tell-all book called The Washington Merry-Go-Round about the sort of the pompous politicians of Washington. It was a huge bestseller in 1931, and eventually it led to creating the column in 1932. And so on a daily basis, and he, I do mean daily, he was in the paper seven days a week, holidays and weekends. Uh, he never took a break between 1932 and 1969. And uh, he basically was trying to tell people what he knew and what was really going on. I think that was his mission. He, uh, he wanted to hold politicians up to a high standard. He felt that uh, they were, if they operated in secret, they'd get away with a lot of things that people should know about. And he felt as a democracy, we needed to know about our leaders in order to make judgments when we cast votes. Well, you say that um, he wrote uh, a daily column and, and that appeared in uh, what, uh, 600 uh, newspapers at, um, at uh, one particular time. But um, he, he also uh, wrote a weekly newsletter. He had a radio program. He wrote television scripts. He wrote lectures. He did speaking engagements and went to thousands of, um, of receptions, which uh, were incredibly beneficial uh, to him in terms of, uh, of, of getting information. Do you have a sense, you've said what his mission was, have you any sense of, um, of what drove him? So why, why this mission? Where, where did it come from? You've obviously described him as a workaholic. And in fact, of the matter is he, he was working at all hours of the day and night. His wife would say that he got up in the middle of the night to, to work. Uh, he, if he was on a train, he was typing. He, he was typing so much that other people in other compartments would complain about it. Uh, he was constantly traveling, picking up news, giving lectures, writing books, writing things. Uh, the, you know, he was just, uh, he devoted his life to this. He had very few hobbies. He just, he, as his uh, stepson, Tyler Abel said, he, uh, he uh, wrote more than he read, for instance. And, uh, but, and he entertained a lot of people because he got information at, at various cocktail parties and other events, lunches with uh, important people in Washington. Uh, when I really sort of tried to get beneath the surface of Drew Pearson, the one thing that came, became pretty clear was he was a Quaker and being a Quaker really shaped his worldview. And it gave him a sense of a need for justice, uh, a need for peace, a need for respect for, uh, for others of, of, and, uh, uh, and, and it just sort of drove him to try to accomplish things. And uh, he worked steadily. That was part of his, uh, his mission was to find out what was going on and, and to uh, make sure that everybody knew about it. Uh, so I, I found that his Quakerism was quite uh, genuine. Uh, in private, he used thee and thy with his family. Uh, they would do qu silent Quaker prayers at meals. And it shows up in the column and the types of things that he held public officials accountable for. How did he go about his work? Um, you've said that 
he met with a lot of people, he entertained people and so forth, but um, he also had a staff and he, and he had uh, people who went out and uh, cultivated uh, information uh, for him. Uh, and, and, and so I'd like for you to say something about that, but also uh, the sense that people, even enemies, also fed him information. Right. So, right. Uh, so how did he go about doing his work, Don? Well, he had thousands of informants, uh, high-level people in the government, right up to the White House, to the Oval Office, to the Cabinet, to the U.S. Senate, and the House of Representatives. Uh, lots of members, elected officials, were providing him with information, floating trial balloons, trying to make sure that what the column wrote was favorable about them. Uh, he also had low-level bureaucrats who were shocked at what the upper levels in their, their agencies were doing and felt the public needed to know about it. And they were leaking things to him. He had people calling him up from around the country, writing him letters, uh, complaining about what was happening. He, he uh, managed to uh, uh, create a scandal, uh, to uh, uncover a scandal in uh, Louisiana that wound up sending the governor to jail, including and the president of LSU University. Uh, so he was, it was a national uh, network that he was, he was developing. And people felt that they could get out, if they were troubled about something, they could get it to the public's attention via the Washington Merry-Ground, which was the name of his column. But to do this on a daily basis, he needed help. And uh, in some respects, he was the managing editor of the column because he had a group of young reporters, he called them his legmen, who he'd sent out to wander through the halls of Congress and the various agencies knocking on doors, asking if people had anything to provide, uh, asking people to, if they could explain something or uh, provide them with further information, uh, cultivating these kinds of sources, building trust and bringing back news to him. So these Legmen who were quite talented uh, young people, very aggressive, very ambitious and uh, uh, very in in ingenious sometimes in the way that they were able to collect information. So it was a, it was a constant uh, effort because he, this column was going out every day. And, you know, every single column that he did is available online, the original typescripts at the American University's Digital Archives, which was a huge boost for me when I was doing this research. But one thing that startled me as I read them was how much information he was funneling out to the public. The column sometimes would be about one issue. But many times it would be multiple stories, little bits and pieces, some of them very serious, some of them very funny. Uh, he would tell how much the vice president made in the poker game the night before. Uh, he would sort of reveal little secrets, the things about their personalities. In some cases, we could call it gossip, but gossip helps to understand the, the people, the, the individuals. And, uh, and, and he, made, he introduced a lot of individuals to the public he followed their careers, and then he explained why they were thrown out of office eventually. Uh, so uh, it, it was a major undertaking. His wife, uh, Luvi Pearson, said that uh, he didn't have to bribe anybody for information. He was constantly getting telephone calls and tips and information like that. And quite frankly, he was too cheap to bribe anybody along the way. He paid terribly low salaries to his staff, but he hired quite a bit of staff. And, uh, and he also had to save a lot of his money to pay his lawyers for all those libel suits that he was involved in. 
Well, uh, just as an example, uh, even Nixon, who uh, put uh, Pearson on his uh, enemies list and um, I guess to some extent hated him, also shoveled information uh, to him that he right. wanted out in the public. That's right. Exactly. The, the press, presidential press secretaries were forever slipping things that the president wanted out. Uh, it didn't make any difference if uh, Pearson was favorable or unfavorable to that president. They saw it, because he had such a huge audience, they saw it as a useful thing to get the information out. And, you know, they, uh, the, it's interesting, they, they, uh, the presidents of the United States don't like anything leaked that they didn't leak themselves but they don't mind leaking themselves. Uh, my favorite story was about Franklin Roosevelt, who one day just got furious about things being second-guessed by things in the column and having things leaked and uh, published in advance. He called his staff together in the Oval Office and he said, from now on, there will be no more leaks. You cannot leak anything, especially to Drew Pearson. And one of his staff members said, well, you know, we do have that one story that we wanted to get out to test public opinion and see what Congress thought about it before we made an official uh, announcement of it. And Roosevelt said, oh, you're right. That's right. What? Okay, you can leak that one to Drew Pearson. And the staff member said, oh, I already have. Ah. And I thought that was symbolic of, of the way uh, uh, things worked in Washington. Yeah, well, it was actually, um, as you say uh, in your book, um, the precursor uh, of the way things worked with other presidents uh, uh, down through the um, the seven presidents that he that he worked with. I we could talk about uh, all of those presidents um, for uh, the entire afternoon uh, and morning if if we wanted to, but I wanted to ask you particularly about. Lyndon Johnson, for, for one reason, uh, because um, Lyndon Johnson was my, was my era and the war and the civil rights movement and all that business was, uh, was my time. So what was uh, Pearson's relationship to Lyndon Johnson? And I understand he was somewhat of, of an agnostic, if I could use that politer term, about the war, which, which changed uh, later mm -hmm. on, uh, while his wife was uh, in the streets demonstrating uh, against the war. So tell us a little bit about his relationship with Lyndon Johnson. Yes, it was certainly a complicated relationship. Uh, Lyndon Johnson is my era as well. And in fact, that's when I began reading Drew Pearson. I came to graduate school at the University of Maryland in 1967, and I read the Washington Post every day. And that's when I began reading the Washington Merry-Grand. I, I hadn't read it before. And of course, I was a student who was worried about being drafted. So I was conscious about the war and everything that was going on and about where Pearson stood on it. And for the most part, Pearson was supportive of the war until early 1968, when the column really began to uh, raise very significant questions about the war. Uh, in my case, I got drafted in 1968, and I wound up in 1969 going off to the military. And so I was gone when Drew Pearson died. And when I came back to Washington uh, two years later, 
uh, Jack Anderson was uh, was writing the column, and pretty soon it was all about Watergate, and I was reading it obsessively every day. But uh, but Lyndon Johnson uh, was a big part of jo of uh, Drew Pearson's life in many ways. Uh, initially, uh, uh, Pearson had helped like Johnson when he met him as a young congressman. Had written very complimentary about him in the column. Had helped him get elected to the Senate. Uh, Johnson uh, attributed the, the support he got in the column for his very narrow 87 vote victory in the, uh, uh, the Democratic primary in 1948. And then he came to the Senate. Johnson moved from a, being a New Dealer on the left to being much more conservative on the, to support the oil and gas industry in Texas. He became a Texas Senator and uh, uh, he rose very rapidly into the leadership of the Senate. And they were, he was getting a lot of criticism from liberal members of the Senate, liberal Democrats. And those liberal Democrats were confiding in uh, Drew Pearson. So the column became very critical of Johnson as Senate Majority Leader, calling him lying down Lyndon, for instance, or not doing things, and thinking that he was too close to the Southern conservatives in his party. And Johnson was very sensitive to uh, news criticism in the press. And for a while, he cut off Drew Pearson, wouldn't help him or talk to him or anything. But eventually, Johnson was also fairly, uh, you know, he's a, he, he was pliable in the sense that he understood how, what he needed to do to, to get good press and to move up. And, and uh, Drew Pearson was also pliable in the sense he knew what he needed to do to get good sources. Uh, and eventually, uh, he began to write more favorably about uh, uh, Johnson's leadership, but it was still what Lady Bird Johnson called a, a love-hate relationship that was going on. In 1959, uh, Drew Pearson decided he wanted to stop the nomination of Louis Straws to become uh, Secretary of Commerce. Eisenhower had nominated Straws, and Pearson had a lot of grudges against Straws. He just thought that Straws had, had not been performed well uh, previously, and he wanted to defeat it. And so, uh, he got the idea, actually his young assistant, Jack Anderson got the idea that they would offer to sort of lessen the criticism of Lyndon Johnson in the column if Lyndon Johnson would help them defeat Louis Straws. <coughs> and poor uh, Jack Anderson went to see uh, Lyndon Johnson and said, how would you like the column to get off your back? And Johnson said, who do I have to kill? <laughs> And that was it. He had to, to get on board and they did defeat. It was a major embarrassment for the, for the Eisenhower administration that Louis Strauss was defeated uh, for the, that nomination. It's very rare that a president's nominee for a cabinet is defeated. And so at that point, Drew Pearson really got on the Lyndon Johnson bandwagon and he, he really promoted him for president in 1960. He thought he was much more qualified than John Kennedy. Uh, and uh, he got supported him when he was vice president. He wrote very complimentary columns about him as vice president. Uh, and, uh, but you know, he also continued to investigate. And he was, at the very end of Kennedy's administration, he was investigating a number of scandals that uh, Johnson was, was close to, one of them being the Bobby Baker scandal. But Baker was Johnson's aide in the Senate who got caught up in a lot of financial irregularities. And so they were... You know, it wasn't a, a total embrace, but suddenly uh, Johnson was thrust into the presidency. Uh, Drew Pearson was actually in Texas. He was in Dallas on November uh, 22nd, 1963. And his uh, step, his uh, daughter-in-law, uh, Bess Abel, 
was at the Johnson Ranch waiting to host the, the Kennedys when they came to the Johnson Ranch for the weekend after the visit to Dallas. And so uh, Bess suddenly gathered up all the Johnson's luggage and headed up to Dallas to fly back to Washington. And she met her father-in-law, Drew Pearson, at the airport. They flew together to Dulles Airport. When they got there, there was a presidential limousine waiting for them at the airport mm. to take them and Johnson's luggage to their home. And suddenly it dawned on Drew Pearson that he had a friend in the White House. And that was the first time in all of his years that he really had a good, close relationship with the president of the United States. And Johnson did not want to lose that. He wanted to make sure that column was in his, on his side. And so he did everything possible to flatter and, and uh, coax and build up and puff up uh, Drew Pearson. So here's Drew Pearson, who for years had been known for battling the presidents and criticizing the presidents, who suddenly is in the president's camp. And that actually raised more questions about his credibility yeah. than all those charges of lying that had been in, in the past. Mm -hmm. And he did have to essentially put aside some of his doubts. He supported the great society. He was all in favor of all of the, the domestic policies, but he really didn't think that war in Vietnam was a wise idea. And in fact, when Johnson was reelected, it was elected in 1964, uh, Pearson published a column saying, look, the situation in Vietnam is lost. The thing to do now is to withdraw our troops. Of course, Johnson did just the opposite. And Pearson didn't criticize him for the next couple of years. Luthie Pearson, his wife, she was out in the streets, you know, picketing the White House. But Drew Pearson was inside talking to Johnson, getting inside information, even getting a hint that he might be appointed Secretary of State at some right. point. Uh, Johnson was a great flatterer uh, and, uh, and could, you know, tell it, figure out what people really wanted and, and make them think that they, there's a chance they could get it. Finally, in March of 1968, just Early in the month, uh, Drew Pearson wrote a letter to Johnson saying, I just can't support the war in Vietnam any longer. I don't think it's winnable. Uh, the column is going to have to say that. Uh, and, and it was the end of that month that Johnson withdrew from the presidential race. Well, I, I, I want to ask you uh, also, Drew Pearson had, I believe, a significant impact on uh, on journalism, uh, what what would you say his impact on journalism was, and and uh, what contribution uh, did um, did Pearson make uh, to uh, contemporary journalism? In many ways, Drew Pearson was the link between the old muckrakers at the beginning of the 20th century, the people in the progressive era who began to expose problems in, the, in society and in the economy and in politics. Uh, and uh, they, they flourished in the era of Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson. And then the muckrakers faded away. Pearson kept that alive. He kept that spirit alive for the next four or five decades until uh, he died in 1969, just before Watergate happened. And really the, he's the link between the muckrakers and the post-Watergate investigative reporters. Uh, Watergate revived investigative reporting. And Jack Anderson, who was, uh, who was the successor to Drew Pearson, 
published an enormous amount. He, uh, he exposed things that are going on in the Nixon administration. He won the Pulitzer Prize for doing that. Uh, the, uh, suddenly there was Woodward Bernstein. There were investigative reporters on all sorts of newspapers. Uh, Seymour Hirsch became quite uh, uh, prominent at that point. And, and, the, and I see the, uh, Pearson as the linkage between the keeping the spirit of investigative reporting alive. Today, we, we have investigative reporters at all the major news outlets. Uh, they're not quite the same as Drew Pearson. They're often teams of people. They don't write every day. They often have long stories that they've been working on for months, sometimes before they, the news breaks. Uh, their news gets vetted probably a lot more carefully than Pearson's did. Pearson's was published every day. Uh, and things, mistakes did pop up in his columns. Uh, but uh, but he, he kept that, that drumbeat going for a very long time, whereas today uh, we still have it, it's, but it's, in, it's created and formed differently. There are, there are groups and there are organizations of investigative reporters who look at federal issues. They also look at state and local issues. And they're quite the teams of very serious uh, investigators who are trying to get the news out. And of course, they also have a multitude of more ways of getting the news out than uh, than Pearson did, uh, from cable uh, news stations uh, and television stations to uh, to the internet, uh, all of which came about after his his uh, time passed. But uh, I, I do think that he is that connecting link that uh, kept that spirit alive. Don Ritchie, thank you very, very much for a wonderful book. We, we began our discussion with why this book on Drew Pearson and why now? And you've given us, I believe, a clear answer. You've given us a picture of a fascinating man who was ruthless in exposing the betrayal of trust of those in great power. You say in your book that he admonished his staff to do the same. This admonition, you say, is still valid today. Thank you for reminding us of that. And I want to thanks to all of you for listening. This is Delmarva Today. I'm your host, Harold Wilson. <laughs>